Hey there, Poemcasters, and welcome to another episode of Poemcast. Today, we'll be talking about pulmonary hypertension. I am super excited about this episode today. I have two physicians here with me that I have been trying to get on the podcast together for a very long time. One of them you may recognize from previous episodes, Craig Patterson. And the other one is one of my favorite people in the world, Chad Miller. Greetings and salutations, Poemcasters. So how about we have you guys introduce each other? So you guys have been doing PH for like 10 years, right? 10 years. Are you tired of each other yet? 10 years. <laughs> no, we're just now starting to fight. <laughs> we, our relationship goes back before pulmonary hypertension. When I started my intern year, Chad was one of the first upper level residents that I worked with. And uh, back then, uh, Chad was just the, the crazy upper level resident that everybody kind of wanted to work with, but kind of rolled their eyes when they got assigned to work with him too. <laughs> <laughs> That's not changed. But since then, uh, his legend has only grown. Call him a jack of all trades, master of some, moonlit as a cardiology fellow in some ways while completing his pulmonary and critical care fellowship program. Gives him a very unique perspective on how to approach and manage patients with pulmonary vascular disease. So it's been a real uh, privilege and an honor to work with him for the last 10 years. So. Miller, this is urban legend. Did you do that like whole year for free? I was paid health insurance and parking, actually. That was it? That was it. I moonlighted a lot. This man is passionate about pH to do that. So uh, the other half of uh, our dynamic duo, as John said, is Dr. Craig Patterson, who you've known from previous palm casts. But I, I trained with Craig back in residency, and then we did fellowship training in separate places, then reunited here. And Craig's been instrumental in keeping me sane and, as I said, grounded in developing our pulmonary vascular disease efforts. Before we dive in, let me give you a quick overview on what pulmonary hypertension is. Pulmonary hypertension is a rare disease that progressively affects the pulmonary vasculature and subsequently the heart. The initial insult is in the pulmonary vasculature, but the survival in pulmonary hypertension is often closely related to the heart, specifically in the RV function. By definition, all it is is an elevated mean pulmonary arterial pressure. It's a broad group with five facets underneath it. It can be caused by increased pulmonary vascular resistance, pulmonary artery stiffness, left arterial hypertension, increased pulmonary blood flow, and combinations thereof. Group one is pulmonary arterial hypertension. Group two is pulmonary hypertension due to left heart disease. Group three is pulmonary hypertension due to lung diseases and or hypoxia. Group four is pulmonary hypertension due to chronic PE, often called CTEF. And group five is idiopathic. It's from unclear multifactorial mechanisms. Dr. Miller, why don't you take it away? I think it's a nice segue into kind of what we're looking to get into today, uh, and that would be the diagnosis of pulmonary arterial hypertension. Unfortunately, in the past 20 years, there hasn't been a significant decrease in the time from symptom onset of patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension to the time of diagnosis. And tragically, we still have a hard time expediting this process. 
in part because pulmonary arterial hypertension is a rare disease. And second, pulmonary arterial hypertension sets up under the grander spectrum of pulmonary hypertension. There's a variety of disease states that cause elevations in the pulmonary arterial bed and sifting through these many disease states to come to a diagnosis, uh, which then you can treat, is often challenging. I always tell the patients, I say, you've got to be a little bit masochistic to enjoy evaluating and treating this disease because you have to know a lot about a lot of different kinds of diseases. You've got to know a lot about cardiovascular disease, a lot about pulmonary disease, a little about hematologic disorders, a lot about connective tissue disease, renal physiology, infectious diseases in some cases. I mean, it really, there's just not many people who like going through that mental exercise of evaluating somebody across all of those different spectrum. Yeah, and you guys have already on this episode and from working with you over the years, I have noticed are very intentional about saying either pulmonary arterial hypertension or pulmonary vascular hypertension. Can you talk a little bit about what the difference is there? I always talk to the patients and when they refer it over for evaluation for pulmonary hypertension, it's usually phrased just like that. Oh, Dr. Smith sent me here because I've been having shortness of breath and he's concerned about pulmonary hypertension or Dr. Johnson says that my echocardiogram was abnormal and that I have pulmonary hypertension. Tell me about what that is. And so I always start at the very beginning and I say, you know, well, first let's talk about what pulmonary hypertension is. If we really just distill it down to the very basic definition, what is pulmonary hypertension? Well, pulmonary hypertension, not surprisingly, is high pressure in the pulmonary blood vessels, period. That's it doesn't tell you anything about why the pressure is high. It just says that the pressure is high. Specifically on a right heart catheterization, you're looking for a mean PA pressure greater than 25, but your workup doesn't stop there. The mindset needs to be different when you're looking at pulmonary hypertension, so much so that it's not necessarily some algorithm, but that one has an understanding of the physiology and consider what kinds of things may drive up pulmonary pressures and what is the probability of that being a role in your particular patient. What happens often is we get into this blind box checking and sometimes patients undergoing testing that they don't need or perhaps not expediting testing that they do need. So I think what we like to instill in those people that we're discussing the treatment and more importantly, the workup and diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension is this understanding, have a command of the physiology, which then certainly more powerful in terms of expediting and and making a good diagnosis. You know, the outcomes in pulmonary arterial hypertension remain abysmal. At present, if you look at more recent data, five-year survival for breast cancer and colon cancer is better than pulmonary arterial hypertension. And so we have a long way to go to catch up, but that first comes with a diagnosis. Of all of the subtypes of pulmonary hypertension, which ones are you most often referred for? And just to remind our listeners, we're talking about group one, idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension, two, which is secondary to heart disease, like heart failure, severe valvular disease, group three, which is secondary to lung disease, like COPD and sleep apnea, group four, which is CTEF, and group five, which is kind of the catch-all category that includes connective tissue disease. Everything. It's everything, but I think who group two and who group three predominate in our referral base, and that's reflective of that those are the two most common types of chronic medical conditions 
in the patient population that we see as pulmonologists. In the United States, the most common cause of elevation in pulmonary pressure is going to be left-sided heart disease, and probably a close second would be lung disease. Unfortunately, as you know, most people have both, and then it gets really challenging on trying to sort out what's driving this. But let's say a patient is referred to you guys with an elevated right ventricular systolic pressure, that's an RVSP on their echo, and they have an EF of 25%, and they have COPD, and they show up in your clinic. How's that go? Uh, Following a large sigh and (laughs) some muffled grumbling, we move forward with explaining to the patient why they were sent here and what's causing their pulmonary hypertension, which is likely going to be a combination of an elevated left-sided pressure uh, in whatever form that is, classic cardiovascular disease process they have, in combination with some element of, of probably COPD. Unfortunately, the answers or the treatments for those entities are somewhat challenging. Even when you've treated the underlying disease state, treated the left heart disease, or treated the COPD extensively, patients still have elevations and pulmonary pressures. And for those, we have have little therapies to offer except for maximizing the treatment of the underlying disease process. Well, and I think a lot of times when patients like that get referred to us, the subtext of the referral goes well beyond the stated reason for the referral, which is evaluation for pulmonary hypertension. And what the referring physician or provider really means is my patient's still short of breath and I'm not really sure why help. That's really tough in somebody who's got chronic systolic heart failure and moderate to moderately severe COPD. But initially, our tendency should be to make sure that patients are optimally treated for the two known conditions to begin with. And I never cease to be amazed at how uh, there are additional therapeutic targets there if we really look into them, whether it's, you know, enhancing diuresis or afterload reduction in LV systolic dysfunction or enhancing bronchodilator therapy or inhaled corticosteroid therapy in uh, COPD or chronic obstructive asthma, prescribing supplemental oxygen to somebody who's got resting or exertional hypoxemia with, with symptoms related to chronic respiratory disease. I think there's very often a lot of additional therapeutic targets in these referrals. So I think, audience, what they're alluding to, uh, and guys, correct me if I'm wrong, more often than not, if these patients have run-of-the-mill group 2 or group 3 pulmonary hypertension, that they are not offered pulmonary hypertension drug therapies, which we'll get into next episode. Both of you guys have patients that somewhat fall into these categories that are on drugs that have out-of-proportion disease to their chronic comorbidities. But in general, is it accurate to say these patients are not getting pH therapies from you guys? Correct. Outside of clinical trials, looking at some of these specific non-group 1 Z states, that is true. For better or for worse, I take the approach with a new evaluation. I'm going to assume that this patient probably doesn't have this rare pulmonary arteriopathy, pulmonary arterial hypertension. But I'm going to start with their case the way I start with every other case and go through from the beginning and essentially work my way through conceptually those who groups and try to identify comorbid conditions or physiological data that suggest to me whether this patient has, and we talk about this sometimes, you know, at the end of the day, the question that everybody is really asking without asking sometimes is, does this patient have a disease of pulmonary blood vessels or does this patient have high pressure in the pulmonary blood vessels due to some other disease? And many times that falls right along the WHO group classifications. Sometimes it does not. 
But if you conceptualize every new referral from the standpoint of let's see what they have, let's see what the data demonstrate, let's see what the physiology is, and through the framework or the film of that question, does this person have a disease of pulmonary blood vessels, then I find for me that that's the best way to work through these invariably complex referrals. patient you guys like a whole lot more than that group two or group three patient. patient that truly shows up in your office with unexplained dyspnea for multiple years. Their primary care provider or cardiologist or whomever did an echo. They have elevated RV systolic pressures and they're coming to you with no workup yet at this point. Kind of talk me through what you're thinking and, and what your workup's going to look like. When you can look at that diagnostic echo and often be almost 100% sure that the patient has pulmonary arterial hypertension due to some of the nuances that one can see on an echo, as well as the lack of other potential causes, i.e. their left side of their heart is absolutely normal, the right side of their heart is dilated, dysfunctional, and you have an elevated PA pressure estimated by the tricuspid regurgitant jet. That being said, you can often get fooled and need to move through the WHO group classes and kind of exclude them by performing basic workup. This includes some measure to rule out those other who groups. For instance, you want to take lung disease off the table. Just like with left-sided heart disease, you're going to get information off the echocardiogram to help hint or even know a priori that the patient has significant left-sided heart disease. But ultimately, the left-sided filling pressure is going to be assessed by right heart catheterization. And that is the gold standard of the diagnosis. This disease is never, and I mean ever, diagnosed off an echo. You can be really, really sure that the disease requires a right heart cath for diagnosis. And it also helps, again, rule out left-sided heart disease or elevations of left-sided pressure in taking group two patients off the table. And I make the argument that there is no single one test that will give you the diagnosis. And we talk about that sometimes, you know, and we've joked about this before, but people ask you, well, hey, or, you know, are you a right heart cath guy? Are you a, an echo guy? You're really comfortable with reading the echoes or and you can't just rely on one piece of diagnostic data. It requires a synthesis of all of the data through the filter of the patient's presentation. For example, you cannot distinguish a patient with severe WHO group 3 pulmonary hypertension due to severe interstitial lung disease from a patient with severe pulmonary arterial hypertension or idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension on the basis of an echo alone. You have to have the pulmonary function test, or you have to have a high-resolution CT scan or both to help differentiate those two things. You can't distinguish uh, those two disease entities, severe WHO group 3 pulmonary hypertension and severe idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension on the basis of a right heart cath alone because they both cause the same physiological changes, an elevation in the pulmonary vascular resistance, often accompanied by a decrease in the cardiac index. You have to have those other pieces of diagnostic data. So in general, it's fair to say most new workups are getting an echo, a right heart catheterization, some sort of chest imaging, PFTs, what else, connective tissue disease panel? Absolutely in the WHO group one silo. So we have idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension, which 
as we all know, means we don't know. But also in that silo include associated disease states with pulmonary arterial hypertension. This includes connective tissue disease, primarily in the form of limited or systemic sclerosis, mixed connective tissue disease, but also polymyositis, dermatomyositis, Sjogren's, lupus, and even rheumatoid arthritis. All of those potential underlying connective tissue disease processes need evaluated. And a simple way to start that is obviously with a history, but also associated connective tissue disease serologies. Are you guys looking at liver disease as well or just doing a, a standard liver function panel? Or? So good question. Uh, there is a very unusual form of pulmonary arterial hypertension called portopulmonary hypertension. It also sits in that WHO group one silo. However, portopulmonary hypertension is pulmonary arterial hypertension associated with cirrhosis. So one has to have cirrhosis uh, with portal hypertension with that associated elevations in pulmonary arterial pressure. These patients are often very challenging to diagnose and treat. They're most often seen in centers that do liver transplant because the disease state is found during the evaluation for liver transplantation. Fair to say it's, it almost never happens that somebody presents for evaluation for pulmonary hypertension and then we retrospectively diagnose them with severe hepatic cirrhosis and portal hypertension. Usually these are people with known, well-established, advanced liver disease who in the process of their evaluation and treatment for liver disease are subsequently diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension and then referred to us and ultimately diagnosed with portopulmonary hypertension. We do in our own program have a number of patients who had some type of smoldering liver disease that never progressed and they subsequently were found to be dysmic and had elevated PA pressure by echo and then the ultimate diagnosis of pulmonary arterial hypertension. But in the midst of all that, you find this not insignificant amount of a liver disease. And then the question becomes, was this portopulmonary all along? That that does happen. I think it, again, requires one to use their pretest probability and kind of considering that. Toxin-induced pH, do you see that? Yeah, uh, well, we've been on a run here lately with the meth-induced pulmonary arterial hypertension. I think we're running a special for a while. But yeah, so drug and toxins are a lively area of pathology at present. Prior to the methamphetamine epidemic, there were other actors on that stage, primarily a drug called fenfen or fenfluramine. This was a uh, appetite suppressant from the 70s and 80s, which induced pulmonary arterial hypertension, turned into a lot of lawsuits, as it turns out. That drug's long been off the market. And in the present space, methamphetamine is a very common cause, especially here in the southeast, of, of patients who develop pulmonary hypertension. And maybe not just illicit methamphetamine, but amphetamine mimicking uh, agents. I mean, there's a lot of speculation that, you know, some of these energy drinks and things like that might be associated on a level that's not yet well understood. Stay away from my monsters. Then. <laughs> Let's talk about CTEF because we haven't really hit on that one too much yet. So we said it's chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. That's a lot of words together. What does that mean? CTEF is an exciting kind of area, especially now, is is one of our curable forms of pulmonary hypertension. Like PAH, CTEF is a disease of blood vessels, the difference being that you've got the development of chronic emboli in the pulmonary vascular bed. And the space now is looking at a lot of these patients for whom we used to think all of them have hypercoagulable states, and that's just not true. The data doesn't really suggest that. And many patients have the one massive or even submassive clotting event for which they have a significant clot burden in their pulmonary arteries, and they just don't break them down. Those clots then develop uh, into scar and are effectively incorporated into the wall of the vessel, and then 
uh, over time generate uh, elevations in pulmonary artery pressure. Patients persistently have symptoms following their acute PE. I mean, if a patient is referred to me for the evaluation of CTEF, first I have to answer the question, does the patient have pulmonary hypertension? And so we go through the same standard evaluation of determining does this patient actually have pulmonary hypertension? That often includes a right heart catheterization. And if the patient has pulmonary hypertension and CTEF is on the list of considerations, then uh, the only thing that really is different is that we then pivot to an evaluation for evidence of clot or plexiform lesions. And really our first go-to diagnostic test after the right heart catheterization in those patients is a VQ scan. So wait a second. So I was always taught in school that the VQ is always garbage. It's going to be indeterminate. You should get a CT scan. So, but it's now it's it's a it's the thing to do in CTEF. So explain that. Just important to make that distinction between what type of clot you're looking for, and there is a little bit of a, a difference between looking for evidence of an acute pulmonary embolism versus chronic pulmonary emboli. Or and a VQ scan is simply better at detecting evidence of things like small peripheral clots that may not be seen on a high quality CT angiogram of the chest with PE protocol. I guess there's just no other way to say it. A VQ scan is more sensitive for the evaluation of chronic pulmonary emboli than is a CT angiogram of the chest. So most of these patients, I'm understanding, are getting CT angios at some point and VQs at some point during their CTEF diagnosis journey. Yeah, VQ first. And if the VQ is positive or has any evidence of clot, then a CT angiogram uh, to make some determination about whether that clot is operable. It is a study required to be done in the evaluation of pulmonary hypertension. If you have a patient for whom you're working up for PAH and it looks like they have PAH, they don't have PAH until you get a VQ scan. This is important. Why? As uh, Craig said, this is one of uh, our curable opportunities in the pulmonary vascular disease world. If you make the diagnosis of CTEF, which is a patient who has hemodynamics and physiology consistent with elevations in pulmonary artery pressure, elevations in pulmonary vascular resistance, in the setting of a VQ scan that shows unmatched perfusion defects, that is by definition CTEF. The next step is then to get a CT angiography to look for chronic clot that then potentially could be removed with a pulmonary thromboinarterectomy, a very complex surgery. It's also important that the evaluations of that imaging need be done by an expert center. Uh, many times, radiologists not looking for chronic disease won't see it, and they'll say the CT angiogram is normal. You send that to a center that does pulmonary thromboinarterectomies, and they'll look at that CT, and next thing you know, the patient's on the operating table having their inarterectomy. So uh, the VQ scan is of utmost importance. All right, listeners, I hope you enjoyed getting to hear from Dr. Miller and Dr. Patterson as much as I did. I always learn something listening to those guys. I was going to walk through our take-home points really quickly. First of all, pulmonary arterial hypertension is a disease of pulmonary blood vessels and is under the larger umbrella of pulmonary hypertension, but not all pulmonary hypertension is pulmonary arterial hypertension. It's a serious disease with a high mortality rate, higher than some cancers. It's also a complex disease, which can take a specialist, such as Dr. Miller or Dr. Patterson, to diagnose. When attempting to diagnose pulmonary hypertension, walk through your WHO groups 
and use that as your guide for your workup. Remember, you can never diagnose pulmonary arterial hypertension just off an echo alone. It needs a right heart catheterization. And we hope to do a second interview in the future with Dr. Miller and Dr. Patterson, focusing on the treatment of pulmonary hypertension and reviewing the drug therapies because they can get pretty complex. Until next time, keep reading, keep streaming, and keep breathing. And don't forget about keeping pulmonary hypertension on your differential.